Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to episode 249 with my guest Jackie Cation. I recorded live at LA Podfest. Uh, I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction, to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. Uh, it's not a doctor's office. I'm not a therapist. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. We're going to be getting a facelift pretty soon. I've got um, a couple of designers working on redoing the site, so I'm very excited about that. All kinds of things you can do at the site. You can join the forum. You can just browse. You can join it and post a gazillion different threads on all kinds of topics. A great way, especially if you live in a rural area, to connect to uh, to other people. Um, you can fill out surveys that we may uh, wind up reading on the show. You can support the show financially through the website uh, by making donations uh, or buying a coffee mug or a t-shirt. Or as I like to say, you can just put your thumb up your ass and go fuck yourself, which can burn calories. <clears throat> uh, started meditating uh, twice a day as opposed to once a day. I When I originally learned to meditate, I was doing it twice a day. And then for some reason, I just felt, I, I, I guess, like I didn't have time to do it that second time. And even though I had heard um, meditation teachers say, you know, you really, that, that second one's really important. I was like, ah, they don't know what they're talking about. They only do this for a living. Uh, I started a couple of days ago doing the second one again, and I can feel a difference. I feel... Uh, more relaxed. I feel less stressed out. I don't know if uh, there's this feeling I have in my head sometimes of like a ticking clock and that I'm just three steps behind the rest of the universe and there's not enough time to do things. And so then <laughs> yet somehow I find time to cram in a nap every afternoon. Um, and, and the other thing I've started doing, which I think is improving my mood, is um, <laughs> something I've started doing. Today was the second day I did it, but it has improved my mood as I say to myself, today 
I'm going to take care of three things that I've been putting off, three things that I've been procrastinating doing. And they don't have to be huge. Like today, I just brought, we have this big jar of, of coins uh, that weighs probably 50 pounds. And so I brought that in and, and cashed that in today. Um, and it's so funny, such a small thing. I felt such a sense of relief and accomplishment when I, when I went and did that. Cause I look at this jar every fucking day and I say, you really, you know, to myself, you really need to bring that jar in. Cause if there's an earthquake, that's going to fly in the air and that's going to kill somebody. And, um, and today I did it. And it's like, what was the big deal? That took 10 minutes. Yet for the last three years, I've stared at this thing like, oh, there's no way. There, you know, what if I couldn't find a parking spot? Uh, what if that, what if this is the big one that stopped me? What if that machine is no longer in the grocery store? And I've got this thing in my car and I got to bring it back in the house. There, I'm going to have to get a search and rescue team. Uh, it's crazy but it's helping so maybe you try that tomorrow maybe you take maybe you take paul's advice and you try to just try to do three things really small things like curing cancer that might be a big one let's do the surveys this is from the struggle in a sentence survey and this was filled out by a guy who calls himself angst hathaway and uh, about his bipolar disorder, he writes, it feels like I should not trust being happy because I know I will crash as soon as possible. Uh, snapshot from his life. When my anxiety is at its peak, I self-harm by punching myself in the face as hard as I can. When my mania is at its peak, I am speaking in cartoon voices and accents. When my depression is at its peak, I cry for no reason. I get that one with when I'm feeling good. I'm like, oh, is this just uh, is this just a ruse? Is this this can't, this can't possibly last? Um, this is from a uh, teenage girl who calls herself Alter Blue, and she has dissociative identity disorder. And a snapshot from her life, she writes, I opened up to one of my closest friends about my headmates slash alters, meaning uh, the her. Um, what would you call it? Um, alternative personalities for, yeah, alters. Paul, they know what you're talking about. For the love of God, just keep reading. Uh, Open up to one of my close friends about my headmates slash alters, and they seemed okay with it at first, but later said they found me triggering and didn't want to be around me anymore. I was already su suicidal this week, but I survived. It's so hard to trust people when people keep betraying me. I never even did anything negative or hurtful to them. You know, my thought when I when I read this, first of all, I just want to give you a hug, but the, the second thing I thought when I, when I read this was, um, it's... Not everybody is going to be able to handle our whatever our brand of crazy is. And something that, that I've gotten better at uh, the older I get is being comfortable um, with the knowledge that some people just don't like me. Um, and it used to drive me crazy. I used to feel like this... Um, this injury, you know, and like something that I needed to write, something I needed to fix. And the, the older I get, the more I'm just like, whatever, man. Life is just too short to try to please everybody. So my point being, um, just keep, just keep, 
searching for friends and eventually you will find the kind of friends that you can trust that get you. This is uh, filled out by Allie, uh, also a teenager. Uh, she writes about her depression, <laughs> mentally watching grass grow on a sunny day. Uh, her anxiety, that feeling of falling in a dream right before you fall asleep, but prolonged and never ending. Snapshot from her life. I was once working as a cashier and had a panic attack for the last four hours of my shift, but couldn't tell anyone because I felt it was my problem only. My cheeks were flushed and my heart raced, but I still had to smile and thank people for making everything worse. Thank you for that. And this is filled out by a uh, woman who calls herself Frog Bunny Quack. And about her ADHD, uh, she writes, like scrolling down pictures on your phone, but not being in control of the speed at which they go by, no matter how much I'd like to stay and look at them. About her anorexia, walking down a tunnel, following a light, but everyone you pass is telling you it's the wrong way and being constantly unsure which direction is right. And then this one is by a woman who calls herself Mother of Parakeets. And about her ADD, she writes, uh, I have 99 projects, but paying attention ain't one. <laughs> About her anxiety, unlike the 30 other times, this time someone is definitely trying to break in. About her codependency, I hate my father, but if I make him French toast, then he'll pay attention to me. And about her PTSD, she writes, uh, I forget everything I need to remember and remember everything I need to forget. My God, somebody does what I've been doing. There's shame. You have boundary issues. I feel guilty for hating my mom. I will be high by 4 p.m. You feel helpless. I will be in hell by 4.15. Prison was not easy, but I deserved it. I think I'm just addicted to lying. I rubbed my body in mud and I laid in the swamp. Didn't move for six hours. I looked forward to and dreaded each meal at the same time. I think I desperately, desperately wanted to talk about it, but I didn't know how to start the conversation. And that's when I, I Called the suicide hotline. A good Craigslist experience is if you are alive at the end of it. So, <laughs> so that is when I first felt love. Like I first felt reaching out to the people and sharing with the other people. Um, this intimate connection where people do stuff for each other without wanting something in return. Yeah, I just I surrender. I think I was 28, and that was the first time I ever experienced that, and it was amazing. Thank you guys so much for uh, for coming out. I um, I appreciate it. You know, a lot of people would look at this room and say, "Boy, you know, not that many people showed up." But they forget that my audience has crippling social anxiety. <laughs> so this is really like Madison Square Garden. If, if you think if you think about what it is that we're up against. Uh, I'm so glad. Uh, I'm so glad you guys are here. How about a hand for all the people that put uh, LA Podfest together? It's it's. Uh, I, I truly mean it's. Uh, it's so nice to be included and to be a part of it. I look forward to it uh, to every year. Um, well, let's not let's not waste any time. Let's get her uh, her up here. I'm sure you know her stand-up, uh, you know her fantastic podcast, uh, The Dork Forest. She's done lots of other stuff, but uh, let's let's get Jackie Cation up here. Jackie Cation, everybody. Don't fall down. Don't fall down. I've Shit. already fallen down today. What, did, what were you 10 doing? 10 a.m. I was on the Doug Benson, uh, Karen Anderson, dining with Doug and Karen. And uh, Doug was like, 
oh yeah, go sit on the other side of me. And so I went around, and it was just like this. You fell off the back. I fell off the back. It was my introduction to the LA Podcast Festival. <laughs> Live streaming, you guys. <laughs> so I like to do it. As long it's, as it's uh, memorable, you know. Are they going to remember <laughs> the people that kept their balance on the show? No. Nope. Who can name the chefs? Nobody. <laughs> but this one, the gazelle yeah. that took a header. Yeah. They can, they can name the nearsighted wobbler. <laughs> uh, I bought a sweatshirt because it was chilly, but I may take it off. Look We're, forward to it. Yeah, we, we are. <laughs> Uh, Jackie, the biggest reason I wanted to have you as a yeah. guest is you probably have the shortest uh, Armenian name ever. Right. You don't want to get anybody with too many syllables. Yeah. You want to keep it tight. Is K- has Cation been uh, truncated from something? Yeah. It's actually um, my, my – I come from a long line of runners. We're uh, cowards and uh, <laughs> that we have been fleeing from any sort of confrontation for decades, for generations. And my grandfather – came to this country, and I think his name was like Hachikian or something, and Cation is actually a Turkish... Uh, they came from Turkey, the fleeing the Turks and the Armenian genocide. Mm-hmm. I won't go into it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, but the... Uh, um, and uh, it means son of a priest. No one in my family has ever been the son of a priest. We're always the priest. We're bossy magoos. We're just a <laughs> pile of bossy magoos. My oldest brother's an evangelist. Uh, really? And, yeah, yeah. It's a lot. <laughs> I don't know if anyone else is related to the sincere, but it's exhausting. Uh, I'm going to assume you were raised Catholic? No, Armenian. The Armenian Church. The Armenian Apostolic oh, Church. I, I was under the impression that 90% of Armenians were Catholic. No, no, it's uh, long-winded and a lot of standing and sitting, so it's lo- I get why you'd think that. But uh, And we think that Jesus is actually in the bread and, and mm. wine, but uh, so it's comparable. But we separated from the... Uh, we're more... No. We're, mm. we're, we're, we had a couple of, uh, c- couple of uh, apostles of apostles came, mm-hmm. and we started our own religion. We have a very... Um, you know how some people want to make this a Christian nation? Mm-hmm. Uh, the Armenian uh, Empire was the first Christian nation. It was the first nation to say, you have to be Christian or we will kill you. And uh, it's, a, it's, it's a little known uh, horrible fact uh, that uh, some people are proud of and I'm not mm-hmm. that proud of. And I was talking to some woman in Nebraska and she was like, sometimes I think that's what it would, should be like. And I said, really, did you want to be Armenian? And she was like, no, I go to, and I said, no, that's what it would be. You wouldn't get to pick which Christianity you were. You'd have to be the one that was picked. And she was like, oh, and I was like, you're not that bright. You're not that bright. I'm Think a, it through, folks. I'm a big, I'm a big fan of the uh, the religions that are just uh, weighed down with ceremony because that's just a nice way to test your faith. Is can you yeah. can you endure three hours of ne- kneeling and sitting and it's a, it's a clock eater, yeah. Uh, the Armenian uh, it takes three hours. It's three hours of sitting around. I went to Sunday school until I was seventeen because it it took up half of the half of the service. It was actually called Sunday Monday school. It was <laughs> <laughs> nice one, nice one, huh? Paul Gilmartin, you guys. <laughs> 
Uh, so let's get into uh, what uh, childhood was like for uh, a young Jackie Cation. You were raised on the south side of Milwaukee. Actual you... city, South Milwaukee. We oh. Own water treatment plant. We're very proud. Uh, <laughs> Milwaukee. Uh, set those goals low. You can often achieve that's them. That's it. That's it. You got a bar down here. Things are good. Uh, no, it's... Well, the... The, the upbringing of Jackie Cation is uh, fraught with peril. Uh, it was good. My brothers would say that I had I had it sweet. You they were the had, baby. I was the baby of six, and so uh, my parents, of course, a fairy tale romance. He was seventeen. She was fifteen. They uh, she got pregnant. They got married. He joined the Marines, and uh, and then he quit the Marines right when Vietnam started because he was like, oh, this doesn't look like it's going well, and. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, as my father likes to say, he said, I'd rather be called a coward than an idiot. And uh, and that has actually been how he's lived his life. <laughs> and he's okay with that. Uh, so but, emotionally, what was it What was it like uh, growing up in your household? Were well, emotions, uh, did people talk about how they felt, or were things just kind no. of pushed down? No, there was a lot of shouting before my mother died. She was, she was a hitter. She, uh, there was a lot of uh, hitting. Uh, prior to the age of seven, she died. Um, and then my brother, oh, one of my brothers has the, the darkest, funniest line about it. He said, you know, we, it wasn't that we, I wasn't sad that she died because I was seven, which made him 15, I think. And uh, he said, it wasn't that I wasn't sad she died. It was just the next day there was milk and bread in the house. <laughs> that is so, so it was hard to miss her. That is heartbreaking. That's a little cold, except for that, uh, yeah, I didn't, uh, I re- uh, the weird thing is, is when she died, I was seven, and the next day, I had not met my, f- I had not seen my father since I was four, so I didn't recognize him when he came into the house, and I remember I was sitting next to my, one of my other brothers, and I said, who's that guy? And he, and he was 12, and he hits me, he's like, that's dad, you idiot, and I was like, oh. Wow. What's a dad? Anyway, I, I'm just still trying to get over the fact that your mom, your mom's a successor, uh, that, that your mom was replaced by French toast, and that was basically oh. <laughs> that was a move up. Yes, except for that, my father remarried immediately. My stepmother, uh, and my stepmother. The, I mean, the story is is see my published works. Jesus Christ, it's the longest fucking story. What are what are the published works? Uh, there, there's I buy there's a thing called uh, Story Time on Bandcamp. You can it's a dollar. It's called R.I.P. Nancy Cation, and it's about my stepmother who passed away three years ago. And it's she audio was, or text? Audio. Okay. It's just audio. It's a buck, and uh, it's because uh, she died like three years ago, and it was she, my dad did not tell her that he had six kids. He was dating my stepmother, and I picture, this is how I picture it, uh, my mother dies. Nancy and my dad, who are living together, my dad says, oh, my, my wife died. Which she knew that he was married. She didn't know that he had six kids. And so I get the kids back, I hear him saying, in my head. And Nancy Cation going, what the ki- What kids? And he goes, and my father's the kind of guy that assumes that he's already told you. <laughs> so I'm sure he was like the kids Terry, Philip, Scott, Russell, Darla, Jackie the kids get them back I got them back and, uh, and then get this Nancy Cation marries my father 
Not one year later, and you're like, well, there's a good reason to never take her advice about men. <laughs> because she, and she loved my father with the power of the sun. She loved him so much. And so she worked her ass off to raise us. And she did an amazing job. My, my grandmother was like, she saved your lives. And I was like, very possibly. She was a great loss to the Austrian army. She, uh, um, there were charts and graphs and French corners on the beds and a lot of, there I don't was, even know what that means, but I like it. There's rules. Anybody was, else know what that meant? She was a, lot a great of rules. Luck. A lot of rules. There was like yeah. we we all had chores and like uh, washing dishes uh, was was assigned. It was like working at a restaurant. My sister and I once a week would spend an hour folding napkins into triangles, and wow. there was a lot of chanting: "Wash, wipe, and put away. Live to eat another day. Uh, don't help unless you're asked, and when you're asked, do it right." And uh, she was literally she was constantly yelling, and she was constantly and she. She was hilarious. She was a very, very smart, funny Inten- woman. Intentionally hilarious. Yes. Yeah. And, but sarcastic, and she was just, she was 26 years old. My oldest brother was 17. My father was 35. And, um, and so she was like, keep it together. All of us were all, none of us. And she was like, and I remember her telling me that she never wanted children. I was eight. And uh, she was what like. That, what that feel like when you heard that? A little hurt. Ouch. <laughs> I'm right here. You said that out loud. That's an inside your head voice. What the fuck? Um, and I was like, and she she said, you know, we're but we're gonna we're in this together. I never wanted children. Children, you certainly can't be enjoying whatever's happening here. Uh, but we're gonna do this together. You will be raised. You will do your homework and. Uh, we're gonna keep it together. You're gonna do some. Uh, you're gonna do your chores, and I'm gonna take belly dance lessons. <laughs> and so every Saturday, we were awakened to our chores with the sound of an album called "Make Your Husband a Sultan." It's uh, it's got husband and sultan in it. That's all I remember. And it was and she was in there with the zills with the little tiny the finger uh, castanets. Finger, yeah, ting 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 ting. And she was shaking her ass, and it was uh, she had some good work. She was. Did she yell it. while she belly danced? No, no, no one needed to. The 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 Lebanese band that was playing on the turntable was doing all the sultan yelling you'd ever want. And so we all got up and did our chores, and uh, and that was uh, that was that. So let, let's talk about uh, like emotionally what you remember feelings, wh- wh- what you remember feeling, what kind of um, what kind of feelings would do you remember feeling as a kid? You know, particularly negative ones, and and how would you how would you deal with them? Did did you experience sadness or longing? Oh, yeah. Or well, here's the thing. So. I don't have, I have almost no memories before the age of six, um, which of course, a bit of a trigger and a bit of a red flag. And then, uh, and then I remember in, I was in third grade when they got married and third grade was terrible, was terrible. I had half a year in kindergarten in one school in our little town, half in a different school. Then we moved first and second. I was in a third school, and then we moved back to one of the other schools for third through sixth. And um, third grade, my teacher was a woman who was very stern, but she, she had no – I would – I was – 
if I were a child, I would be up to the gills with Prozac and Ritalin, and I was a mess of a kid, and I would have temper tantrums, and then I would send myself to the principal's office and go and hide underneath the secretary's desk. Seriously? Yeah. Yeah, I was eight years old, and I, I, you know the door, you know those glass doors that you hit with uh, with your hand to make the bar go, mm-hmm. and then it opens, and they're usually all glass? I broke two of those uh, with my foot, because I was just kicking the shit out of the door. So you were an angry kid. There was nothing but anger. It was nothing but rage, and until probably 14... Because what I did when I was when I was about eight years old, Nancy when when Nancy came into our life, she started reading to us, and it was like an entire world opened up. I was like, oh, I can check out entirely by just reading, and so all that's I started reading when I was about seven, and I could read before that, but because um, I'm the youngest, you know, and, and you end up getting stuff. But um, but the uh, it was I never I didn't stop reading i mean it's it's still a place where i hide where reading the, and rereading the the anger that you were feeling if you could have found a way to express what it is that you were feeling what what would you have said at at eight well the thing what the greatest fear when i was about eight years old was that i would be sent away and uh, why did you think that that was because they bit- sent my oldest brother away for his behavior, for, yeah, he he was uh, he was violent, and he was he was seventeen, and he uh, they, he went to uh, some sort of juvenile home. He's the evangelist, mm-hmm. and uh, he uh, he had this crazy like when Nan- when 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 Nancy came into our lives, there was a year when she didn't live with us, and she was like, and and Terry was like sixteen or seventeen, and. He was a player. He, him and my my brother Scott, who's this two two kids younger than him. Uh, Nancy told me once that she came home and they had two naked fifteen year olds, and t- Scott was fourteen and uh, Terry was seventeen, and there were two and the four of them just naked frolicking in our <laughs> shitty apartment, and she was like, "It looked like fun. I'm not saying, but it's not okay. It isn't okay." So, um, so. <laughs> And then my dad was like, you can't, be, you can't be a little asshole or whatever. I don't know what it was. And then Terry took a swing at him. And the next thing you know, Terry's gone. And so Terry went to juvie or he went to some, some farm up north where they send dogs. Uh, I don't know. But um, so the idea was is that if you kept your head down and you didn't, if nobody noticed you, you did your work, you didn't talk too much. And uh, when you did talk, you were entertaining. Uh, it would you would be fine. You would get fed and clothed, and uh, things would work out. And Christmas would come, and you'd get a new blanket. <laughs> <laughs> so would it be would it be fair to to say that some of the rage was that even though it may have not been conscious in your mind, but that there was rage that love was conditional in your house entirely conditional and i've looked i mean i've worked through it i mean i am not i've done all the all the work to find a way to love these people right because there's no unconditional love there is i have never experienced unconditional i mean that's why people get pets is because that is the only unconditional love in our lives there are two words that go with unconditional love and surrender and uh and so the only way that i was ever able i've 
I for years I was never able. My brother Scott would say that he loved us. He was like, because we were very Lord of the Flies when my when my mom was alive, mm-hmm. because we presented a united front out here. But the infighting was brutal, and uh, and so and Scott and Terry and they they were constantly talking about how you know we got each other's backs. We got each other's backs. You know we're, we're family. We're family. We love you. You know we love each other. We I got your back. I got your back. And then they would beat the shit out of each other. And you were like. Like, oh, this doesn't seem like anything I've ever seen on the Brady Bunch. They have six kids. It seems all very lovely. You, you haven't seen the outtakes. Oh. I remember what, the first year that Nancy lived with us, uh, two of my brothers, my brother Phil and my brother Scott, were fighting, and they had broken the kitchen chairs up, you know, the spokes in the chairs. They had ripped the spokes out of the chairs and were beating each other with them. Did they think and, they were in a saloon? Uh, <laughs> they thought they were... <laughs> And my sister was trying to stop the fight because she's always been. The was kind she of dressed a- like a whore at the top of the <laughs> stairs and pulled a derringer out of her bra, and everybody stopped and looked up. <laughs> now, she couldn't stop him, so she called Nancy at work, and I was hit. I was hiding underneath the kitchen table, and uh, I remember Nancy saying, "I could hear her over the phone scream." Put one of them on the phone. And Darla handed the phone to my brother Phil. And Nancy yelled at them. And then she said, hand the phone to Scott. I could hear her. And, then, and she yelled at them separately. And she stopped the fight. She stopped a fight from across town, Paul Gilmartin. <laughs> from that she, moment on, I was uh, Team Nancy. Team Nancy. She, because there was peace. <laughs> she sounds like a dynamo. She was amazing. She was... Uh, you know, I mean, she was not, she was, you know, someone once, Tom Papa was uh, talking one night about how his wife was crazy, but she was crazy because he and their children had driven them her crazy, because that's their job. Their job is to drive the mother crazy, because the mother is the only person who wakes up knowing that there's shit to do. Everyone else gets to just wake up. And wait for, wait to be told to do shit. Right. Right, and so, and every day Nancy would wake up going, I gotta get these people out of here, and then I gotta go to work, and then I gotta start dinner for tonight, and then I gotta come home. And then eventually my dad would come home, wandering in and out of our lives with a bag of money. And, because uh, he was a very 50s kind of dad for a guy who was a dad in the 70s. Because uh, he was, his whole thing was, well, I, you know, I provide the, I provide the, the financials. And, uh. Do you think he was a philanderer or a drinker or well, we what? We know that he's a philanderer. Yeah. My father, he's uh, to this day still, when possible, getting some action. Uh, 78, 78 years old, working the ladies. Uh, sure. And, uh, but uh, the, uh, um, and he was, he had, but he had a gambling problem. Mm-hmm. So he, uh, th- there was, there was sometimes there'd be a lot of money. And then other times there would not be any money. So what do you think you would have screamed if you could have if you, if you could have verbalized when you were kicking that door? What do you think you would have? Well, said? I know what I what I I the a regret I have now is that sometimes my father will say the same things that he's all he has never changed. My father, my father does not change. There's no reason for him to change. Uh, things are fine in his world. Uh, he doesn't have to worry. I mean. He is optimistic in the face of fact. He is uh, opti- <laughs> Genuinely, my father's slogan is, every day's a holiday, every meal's a feast. You can't have a bad day with Elliot. And uh, that is 
patently untrue. Uh, so, but the thing is, is so. I mean, I, I, I have been cruel. I have said very snarky, very sort of shitty things to him, just because sometimes he makes me mad because he doesn't. I mean, I had to find a way to love him. And the best thing, the way that I could do it was to say, well, he didn't go out for cigarettes and not come back, you know? I mean, it wasn't like he didn't, he didn't abandon us. He found someone to take care of us, and then he would show up. And uh, so he was there, and he has a huge personality, my dad. He's a very big personality, and he's a, in many ways, he's the smartest guy in the room. 85% of everything he says is entirely correct, and the last 15% is insane, it's like you can be what I remember as a child him saying you can be whatever you want to be and then the next sentence was Jesus only had 12 followers yeah he's like anybody could get 12 followers and you're like did you want us to start religions he's like I'm just saying you could and he would say things like you can do whatever you want in life, which is a beautiful thing to tell a child. And then the next sentence was, as long as they don't catch you. So literally, there's no, the boundary is when you get caught. And then mm. when you get caught, well, how are you going to talk yourself out of that? And, uh, and then you, if you talk yourself out of it, you get a pat on the back. And you're like, but why was I doing that? You know, I mean, there was, there was, it was, I remember when I was like 14 years old, I sold student council candy bars and there were two rules for student council candy bars. You could, they're 50 cents each and you, and you have to sell them on campus. You can't sell them off campus. I was selling them, uh, off campus in front of Kmart and Kohl's. I would walk from one to the next for a dollar each and at every bar in South Milwaukee, Wisconsin, uh, in between them. And I was 14, 15 years old. And I thought I was such a great salesperson, not realizing that a 14, 15-year-old girl in a bar uh, with tired factory workers asking for a dollar, that's a win. That's a win for every guy. He's like, sure, can I touch your arm? Yes, you can. And uh, I made like 70 bucks a, a day for weeks until finally I'd, pride was my downfall. I, narked, I bragged about it to mm. Holly Habonic. A name that still burns. It still burns. Because she narked on me and she told the principal and I got called into the principal's office and he, was, and he said, uh, I hear you're selling uh, candy bars off campus for a dollar each. I thought I was in trouble for selling them off campus. I didn't think I was in trouble for selling them for double the price because that's just good sales. That's just, huh. I'm, so I said, yeah, yeah. And he goes, well, I'm going to have to tell your parents. And I said, well, they know. And he looked at me like I had been raised by wolves. <laughs> and he goes, they know. And he said, you know, that's, that's stealing. And I genuinely, I said to him, well, you're getting your cut. <laughs> <laughs> and I walk home. I'm expelled. I get suspended or sus expelled. And I'm walking home from, from, from high school. I must have been, it must have been sophomore year. Because I'm walking home from high school just crying, thinking about killing myself, throwing myself in, because my mind has been, like, the world is upside down. I'm in trouble for selling and being successful. It doesn't make any sense to me. And I get home, and my dad and my sister are sitting on the couch with these very stern looks on their faces, and, they, and I walk in, and I'm, I'm just tear-stained, and I'm like, 
hey. <laughs> and uh, they both burst out laughing. And my dad stands up and pats me on the back and says, dinner's on you. <laughs> and I'm like, what the fuck just happened? Because I don't know what, it was the weirdest. So, so, so going back to my Your question, question yeah. what, what do you think if you could have verbalized when you were having those outbursts, what do you think you would have said out I loud? Saw, I literally, if I could have, if I, because what it was is everybody's childhood is like my childhood was. What do I have to do to get your approval? What do I have to do to get your love? What do I have to do? What am I doing wrong? Am I being too loud? Am I not being? Am I not working hard enough? Am I in your way? What am I not doing? You know and. In many ways, I wasn't in their... I mean, I was the least of their problems because my brothers had were almost men. You know, they were 14, 16, 17, 12. I mean, they'd raised themselves, right? My sister had always been... My sister, Darla, and my brother, Phil, had been the parents when my mom was alive. And so they had direct clashes with Nancy. I never had any because I was always a child and taken care of. So I just, in my head, I was like, stay out of the way, grow up, and get out. And that's, I mean, I'm, my sister was nine years old. Wait, if I was seven, she was nine. When she, I remember she was nine or ten years old. We'd go to the grocery store. Remember those, um, those housing, the real estate on newsprint that were at the grocery stores? She would pour over those, looking for a house to buy when she was ten years old. And I was like, are you looking for a new house for us? And she's like, not for us. <laughs> Just me. And At I was like, nine Just you? Old. Yeah. And she goes, You could live with me. And because uh, she and I were, were friends. She and I, she was always good to me. She has always been good to me. She's one of the best people I know. And um, it, was, it was weird because she is a caretaker person, you know? And she is. But she and Nancy just got into it because Nancy was the adult mm. and Darla didn't have to be the adult anymore. And so Darla was like, well, now what am I? And so she didn't know what she was. I knew what I was, which was extra. I've always been extra. You know, I was the extra girl. I was the extra kid. There was always, there was never, there was never enough of anything for all of us. And when I was really little, like when there was no food in the house, I remember my brother Phil, he would sometimes he would stare at me and he'd be like, I have like four memories from before. And one of them is my brother Phil making me buttered noodles and going, have you eaten? <laughs> and making me bread buttered noodles and giving it to me. And then, because um, they would all walk to my grandma's house. My dad's mom would feed the, the rest of them all the time. And, but I was too little. So I remember I was like three or four years old. And I was hitchhiking from where we lived in downtown South Milwaukee. By yourself? By myself, picked up by my oldest brother, Terry's buddy, who stopped and said, aren't you Terry Cation's little sister? And I said, yeah, yeah, I want to go to the pool. <laughs> and, uh, and he said, is anyone there? And I said, yeah. And he goes, all right. And he drove me to the pool, which was about a mile away, and uh, he dropped me off. I went swimming, because if you didn't have a towel, if you just had your swimsuit on and no shoes, you could get in for free. But if you had a towel, you had to pay a dime. Uh, I was raised in the 12th century. And uh, 
But I remember, because uh, Darlie usually would take me, but she was six, and she had already gone. And so I missed my boat, because we would walk together without shoes, and it was, it was, yeah. But she had already gone, and I was like, I got to get there. I got to get there. It was the summer. And, uh, uh, but it was just, I mean, I have like, like my earliest memory is I'm, just sad sack earliest memory i'm i'm sitting on dirty laundry in an attic because my mother my dead mother never by the time i met her when my, my oldest brothers will tell lovely stories of her trying to be june cleaver with all of her heart like really just giving it her all but she's 15 she's 16 she's 17 she's 18 she's 19 she has four kids she's 20 years old she's 22 years old she's got four kids she's 24 years old she's got five kids she's 26 years old she has a new baby six kids holy shit uh she eventually just fucking gave up right so by the time i was born my dad would give her money she would buy new furniture uh, and she would send our clothes out. She would run out of money. She would take our clothes and throw them in the closet. She'd get another check. She would buy us all new clothes. She wouldn't pull the clothes out of the closet. So when she died, there were closets full of rotting clothes that she, she never, never dealt with. Never dealt did laundry. She well, not by the time I was born. She had tried to do. She had tried to do all the things: the cooking, the cleaning, the all of it, and then just exhausted, tired, wow. done. Right? Who? I can't blame her. I swear to God, she did her best. But I genuinely picture my mother in heaven with a beer and a cigarette going, oh, look, it all worked out. (laughs) Space work. Anyway. uh, So how do you think this stuff has affected you and how you view the world and how you use things to cope? What what are the issues that you struggle with today? I know depression. Right. Well, I mean, off and on, it's depression. Anxiety. And then I don't have a lot of anxiety. I have money. You should. I have mo- You're not paying attention. <laughs> yeah, <but> possibly. <laughs> I, get, I get anxious about money. I'm, I'm twitchy about money. And, you know, on the Dork Forest, I had Chip Chinnery on. Mm-hmm. And Chip Chinnery is a guy who has a money, he's a, he's a money blog. And great guy, good friend of mine. Greatest guy in the world, super sweet guy. His dorkdom is that he likes to... Uh, spend two hours saving tw- seventy-five to two hundred dollars by tricking a credit card company into giving him something. This is a fun game for him, and uh, I—it's not my dorkdom. Never been an issue with anybody else. Never aired that issue because I had a tiny meltdown during that episode where I was like, "It's the fucking stupidest thing I've ever heard anybody spending their time doing in their whole lives." And he's like, "What the hell just happened?" Safe space. Dork's forest, safe space. Everyone gets to dork out about what they want. But I was like, why would you spend two hours to get a $75 gift certificate to Flowers Are Us or whatever? And he's like, well, it's free. And I was like, it's not free. Two hours. And a lot of fiddle and diddle. But So I have money issues. I have, I have issues about not having enough money, wanting money too much. I don't want to... For years, I didn't want to make money. Because I, I felt like I was selling out, you know. I didn't want to sell merch. I didn't want to, because I'd sold things my entire life. I wanted to be an artist, man. And uh, recently, probably 10 years now, uh, I've been like, no, no, money. I'm going to need some money. And, uh, and I've made peace with it, but it's like things, I'm not, I'm not good at connecting with people, right? I w- I've never been good at making friends. 
until I was about 14, I didn't have any friends. I had an imaginary friend. When I was, when I, when I was seven years old, I just realized when you were asking me about this stuff, my imaginary, I didn't have an imaginary friend before then. I had, but you I couldn't afford one before <laughs> that. <laughs> Times that? were tough. Times, Times were tough. tough. We couldn't afford an imaginary friend. The 70s. Mm. And uh, so. The recession. It was a. Uh, First thing it cut back on is imaginary friends right. when the recession happened. Lines lining up to get gas and imaginary yeah. friends in 1972. <laughs> and. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> you remember the imaginary friend embargo of 1973? <laughs> What did OPEC stand for? <laughs> my, and, uh, the uh, uh, no, but I got it, his name was Steve. I was eight. Steve was twelve. Steve had a motorbike, and uh, that's my imaginary friend. And I had my imaginary friend for far too long, far too long, till I was about twelve, thirteen, until uh, Steve became my imaginary lover. You guys. In other news, a different podcast. Anyway, so. The um, because I've just been thinking about this because since you were talking about it, because I'm not, friendship was not. I didn't have any friends. I, uh, I had kids I played with at the at, at in grade school. The neighbor kids I played with them, and they were my friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the way that little kids are friends with each other, and then we went to junior high, and they all got lives and friends, and there were tables of people who sat together. And uh, <laughs> but when I was 14, I remember. Because my sister made me join things. She was like, you will be joining things. You will be in the debate team. You will also be in student council. You will stay in band. You will do this. You will do that. And, uh, and she was the boss of me. And so when I was 14, I was on the basketball team. And I was doing laps uh, around the track, reading a book while I read, while, while I did it. That and is was, so adorable. That well, is so adorable. But you, and you know what I was reading? The Bravest Teenage Yanks. Uh, it was a nonfiction book about uh, teenagers who won medals of honor during the Civil War that were for the Union. Anyway. Um, God bless you for not reading Are You There, God? <laughs> I never did read that. No? I never did read that. But, but, I mean, think about it. Today that happens. Kids are on their phone while they're doing laps. I'm sure of it, right? But... I was, uh, this is an early adopter of antisocial behavior. Uh, 14. You basically had an analog phone. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And the coach came over and she was like, what, what are you doing? Put the book down, run with someone else on the team. And I was like, boo-hoo, I don't have any friends. And I remember her looking at me. Did you actually cry? No. Okay. Oh, no. No, I can't. Uh, But thank you. Um... But the, the thing is, is uh, she said, I'd say boo-hoo because I was all emo. Because you know when you're like 13, 14, you feel things. And, uh, and I was like, I don't have any friends in that petulant kind of teenage voice. And she just, I genuinely remember her sighing and going, what? You don't have any friends? And she just stared at me genuinely for like a beat. And then she said to me, are you friendly? <laughs> And I, it was like a light bulb. I was like, no. (laughs) No, I am not. And she, (laughs) I'm surprised she didn't laugh in my face. That's like the simplest interpersonal math problem ever. Ever. She went, that's how you get friends. 
you have to be friendly. And I was like, and since then, I have been working on it. It's a line, of course, remembering to be friendly to Stalkerville, uh, to the sweet spot of friendship where you listen to other people. Huh? Huh? Learn skill. Do you struggle with nuance? Are you somebody that tends to be kind of an all-or-nothing black-and-white thinking, or is nuanced thinking and behavior easy easy for you? I don't know what that means. Do you mean am I super judgmental? Because I am. No. Not. Do you are you like uh, you know I'm not going to do any of this, or I'm going to compulsively do this, or oh. I'm going to think that I'm the worst person in the world, or I'm going to think that you know? No, no, no. I uh, I am uh, incredibly balanced and half-assed. So uh, I will try anything, not finish it and be okay with it, and then try something else. Oh. And uh, you should see my house. It it is a crime scene of unfinished projects. I'm not kidding you. There are curled up boards in the back from where I tried to dig a drainage trench four years ago. I haven't even thrown away the boards that covered up the thing when I knew I needed to give it up because I was like, I, I can't finish this. Do you feel bad about it? Not really. See? But I look at my backyard and I and I feel well. I feel shame about it when I look at it because, but not sh- not enough shame to actually do something about it. That's the <laughs> that's the that sweet shame. spot I'm in. Is it's not the shame the shame and the fear have just got me in this fucking cesspool of stagnation. I don't know how do, do people really find shame some sort of impetus? Oh yes. Okay. Shame the great motivator. The great. He motivator. wears a turban. <laughs> teaches, he teaches ladies how to belly dance Right <laughs> You put a quarter in and he tells you what you should be ashamed of uh, Zoltar yeah. uh, He tells you your future um, I'm sorry I to guess. cut you off on that But no, I just that I had sense. to That's that, something that I, that, that I struggle with Yeah, and, yeah it's, uh, There are things that I wish You know, like, like I wish that I had written a novel I don't want to write a novel. It's a lot of work. But I wish that I had written a novel. I mean, I know that there's a story. I mean, like, don't you think? Mm. You're like, I'm sure that the great American novel is inside of me somewhere. But it sounds like an awful lot of work. <laughs> and uh, and so I don't, I write, I, I do write short essays. And uh, nothing so fictional as lies. Like, like, um... You know, and my brothers always say that that my childhood was so much better than their childhood because uh, I had Nancy, and they're like, and and my version of childhood, they're like, well, that's a revisionist. I mean, that's Nancy Cation, my stepmother, is the greatest uh, model of Henry Kissinger you've ever met in your life. She would talk about how much she loved us when she was children and when we were children, and how what a great life we had. And I was like, mm, it was all right, but. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. You weren't psyched, and you can't pretend now that you're psyched, because that's not real. And she would always say, I love my grandchildren. And I was like, you haven't, s- they're 20 minutes from you. You haven't seen them in two years. And, because uh, she never did like children, but she likes the idea of family. Anyway, um, but. Uh, so the issues that you struggle with with today. The issues that I struggle with today are. Um, so it pro- it procrastination, is that is that one of them? Or do you just. It's the lack of the motivation because you don't strike me as somebody that that doesn't have a good work ethic. You strike me as somebody that does have a good work ethic. Right. 
Right, but there's things that I will do and there's things that I will not do, that I will not work on. And what I... Creative things? Yeah. Like, like I don't... Um, Out of just, fear or because... There's it, not enough instant gratification. I see. I am not the hero of that story. Uh, the, because what I would want is I would want... Like I just, uh, someone asked me to write a sitcom treatment for myself. They offered, they were like, maybe you could be in a sitcom. And these are real people in the industry of show. And they're like, we care and we might do a a show where it'd be like Roseanne meets the Big Bang Theory. And I'm like, I would would do that. And they're like, well, you have to write the treatment. I was like, oh. Done. Done deal. Why don't you, why don't you write it? You mm-hmm. had the good idea where Roseanne meets the Big Bang Theory. And so I wrote it, and then I sent it uh, to my manager, and my manager was like, yeah, it needs a rewrite. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> and, uh, and then I sent it, and I'm like, okay, it's done. And she's like, no, no, it's not done. It needs another. And I'm like, no, I don't want to do it anymore. And she's like, what? <laughs> and I said, it's done. Let's just send it to CBS, see if they care. And she's like, no, this isn't ready. And I'm like, all right. So giant fucking baby about the whole thing. It doesn't, it's not cool. and, is, and is that where you are today with it? You- that is exactly where I am today. That is exactly where my manager is like, well, then maybe we shouldn't be uh, in a working relationship. And I was like, whoa, I have never made you a dime. And now you turn on me. <laughs> I have an enormous amount of sympathy for Melanie Truitt. <laughs> She is very good at her job, and I have not made her any money. <laughs> oh, poor, th- poor thing. Anyway, she- and she's done her damnedest to get me to. I, I wish. I mean, my biggest, my biggest emotional problems right now are, I have a a, a genuine like. Fear, this aging thing is bugging the shit out of me because I've always been inside my head, an eleven year old boy. That is what I, that's how I dress. And uh, I, you know, and, and I don't know what, I don't, you know, I don't know what that, I don't like, you know, I always think that I can do more things than I can. But I've never been very fit. Like, I'm not, I'm not athletic, but I've always been able to do whatever I want and at least try. Like, one summer I did a lot of windsurfing. Well, this doesn't windsurf, but this can hold on for two seconds 1,900 times a day and then get knocked over, and then you're like, all right, I'm doing it. Picking that sail up on a windsurfer is one of the most physically difficult things I I have ever done. I was a pirate for a heartbeat, and then gone. And (laughs) I'm a pirate. No, I'm not. And I'm a pirate. And no, I'm not. And so, I mean, it's just like that over and over and over again. Until, you know, and so quite honestly, recently, I've just, I'm, I'm probably going through my middle-aged lady time, right? Which nobody wants to talk about. <laughs> reminding me a lot of uh, my initial lady time when I was 12 and Nancy Cation handed me a tampon and didn't tell me it was an applicator. No instructions, just here you go. And then, ow! Because... Uh, uh, you didn't know to take the one part out? Pink! Yeah, it's supposed to, you go up, you go pink, and then you pull the plastic shit out, and then you live your life uh, without draining blood everywhere. Uh, this one tried to jam the entire thing up my 12-year-old uh, business. Uh, ouch. And um, 
And then I couldn't explain to her why what I was like, it hurts. And she goes, ah, then don't be cool and wear pads. What do I care? And so I wore pants until I was 19, and my friend Judy uh, Buchkowski, uh, who then married a guy named uh, Sharif Arikanshik and hyphenated her name because she hates the government. And uh, <laughs> Buchkowski Arikanshik. And uh, I would love to hear that name get called at a restaurant. <laughs> they, they call that name and they say, Your table will never be ready. <laughs> And uh, but I, she all she had was a tampon, and I was like, "Oh, I can't use tampons; they they hurt." She was like, "What? You're what's you're 19? What's happening?" And I was like, "Well, no, like they it, it they're it's too long; it's too big." And she goes, "Tink," and I was like, "What?" Uh-huh. <laughs> it's like a giant reveal, and then uh, and then thirty years of being a grown up lady. But now, but literally, I'm going through this time where um, all I have is I have two brain cells in my head, and I rub them together to speak, and that's I can't remember any any words. Uh, the only thing I could actually do very well is stand-up comedy, which thank God because that is my uh, job. Uh, but the uh, but when I'm talking to people and my husband and people in my life, I don't. I have no patience. I have no tolerance. I have very little kindness. I actually wrote on my hand last week: patience, tolerance, and kindness to remind myself to have those things. And uh, and it was it's it's incredibly depressing. It's depressing to not feel like a good person. And all I want to do is sleep, eat, 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 and fuck. And my husband's like, I'm okay with that. (laughs) And I'm like, sure, but I'm going to gain 30 pounds. And he's like, no, I don't care. Well, the nice thing is, is two out of three of those you can do in bed. Right, right. Actually, you could do all three. It just wasn't. You just need a little vacuum uh, handy. I hate vacuums. Uh, I'm like a cat. It sounds like uh, untreated depression. I, I'm no doctor, but... Yeah. Uh, well, I think it's just perimenopause. I think it's... Is it? Yeah, I mean, though I'm told that I could probably take some sort of reaver medicine and uh, and then and uh, become emotionally right there for a while. Do you take birth control? No, no. Because I'm, I'm told, and I could be wrong, uh, that that can help level your hormones out right is um, that is that true Did, yeah that's what i'm uh, i was on birth control once when i was 19 and uh I became yeah, but irritable. you put it in your butt until your friend told you <laughs> and i was like that's not where it goes <laughs> but i don't want to have an ass baby no jackie we got to go back to the drawing board jackie Here's too much information. Tab A, slot A. Jackie Cation. Okay. Um, so, <laughs> so you're struggling with uh, perimenopause. So, yeah, so I guess I'm struggling with that, which is making me feel not good about myself because I'm, I'm sleeping too much, I'm eating too much, and so I'm gaining some weight, and I'm not exercising and you're sna- at And all. you're snapping at people. And I'm snapping at people. So some friend of mine, I had lunch with him the other day, and he... He is a hothouse flower. He is a very, um, and he was telling me a sad story, and he was crying. And then he said, "I'm sorry, I'm sorry for crying." And I said, "Well, I would cry if I could." And uh, and he was like, "What?" And uh, 
And I said, I know, it's not even conversation. I mean, there's a certain point in your life where you're like, you're so depressed or you're so unhappy that you can't even bring it up because it isn't conversation, you know? You you can't, you can't, I mean, there there's like two people in my life that when they say, how are you, I can actually say, oh, I'm a little, I'm a little dragon, I'm a little suicidal, I... But not today, not today. So it's a win. How how are the uh, suicidal thoughts? How have they been lately? Not good. Not. I mean, I literally sometimes, like I'm not. I am a gen. I I feel very blessed that I've never been on any sort of antidepressants, because when I get depressed, I just it it happens. This is kind of a long stretch for me to have it. It's probably been nine months of me just off and on, kind of going. <sighs> it's exhausting, but it's not, I don't know how to fix it except for I know, here's the best thing about it is that I know that it doesn't last. Mm-hmm. I'm old enough to know that all of the the crazy sadness and the and the desire to kill myself and stuff like that. My father said the funniest things because uh, as I said to him a couple of years ago, I said, I don't want to, uh, because I, I didn't want to kill myself, but I was I was ready to die. You know, it's that whole thing where you're like, well, I'm not going to kill myself, but I'm tired. Uh, so if I died, I'd be okay with it. And my dad goes, yeah, that's your 40s and 50s. In your <laughs> 60s and 70s, you're like, eh, just one more day. God. And uh, and my dad's 78, and he's like, I could live. It's going to be good. I'd like to live. And uh, so... On a bad day, how many times do you think about suicide? Once, all day long. It's kind of, it's a low level all the time on a bad day. On a good day? On a good day? I don't think about it at all. It's not. And I've probably thought about it twice in the last two weeks. So once a week. Yeah. That's not bad. Yeah, a little judgment. <laughs> no, I think I think No, it's empathy. sympathy. It's sympathy, yeah. It's I think sympathy. it's empathy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know what's the difference between sympathy and empathy. Probably one's more proactive, probably. Yeah. Sympathy seems a little more passive. Empathy seems a little more. Yeah. It's okay. Um, it, would you like to be able to cry more? Yes. I know that when I lived alone, there was more crying jags. It was easier to just have a crying jag. Yeah. Um, now that I, my husband, we both work from home, it's very hard for me to go, hey, I'm going to. Uh, take an hour and have a crying jag. No, you keep working. <laughs> mm. I mean, it just, I mean, because he wants to help. He wants to, he is a good person. He loves me and he would like me to not, I mean, but he is, he's also very good about knowing that I need solo time because I'm not, because I'm a pretty solo, I've always been alone. He is the first relationship I've ever had and we've been together. It'll be, I think, 11 years, but nine years married next month and he's 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 completely not you know i mean he's as sane as any of us but i mean he's he's like a, an adult man and so he has had previous relationships he is not a comedian he is i mean he has he has social skills he has had long-term relationships he has had short-term relationships he is uh the kind of guy that gets married you know he's a serial monogamous guy you know and uh and so he is, I'm very lucky and blessed, but he is also not, 
he's not controlling at all. So when I'm like, I'm going to need you to fuck off for an hour or two, he's like, and I'm gone. Have a good time. Uh, right when you find work, <laughs> you know, I mean, he's, he's very supportive of the solo time that I, that I need too. So if I told him, but I, ca- I can't manufacture a crying jag. Do you ever go to him when you're really sad? Or is it something where you're like the wounded animal that just wants to go retreat into the bushes? We, uh, we joke a little bit about how <laughs> sometimes he could tell that I'm hurt. And he's like, and I said, yeah, I'm like a wounded bird that you try to get to hand. And he's like, yes, to hand. And, uh, and so, but it's like one time he, like, he does things like he says what he needs. I occasionally fall into this thing where I assume that he is a psychic. God, I do too with my wife. Right. And so he's like, because he was, we both have families that need support. And so his moms live in the middle of California. And he needed, he was like, I'd love you to come this weekend. It's, it's, I know it isn't convenient, but I'd love you to be there for me with my moms. And, and I'm like, I don't want to. Yeah, but of course I will because we are in this together, right? And now I, on the other hand, was going back to Milwaukee uh, with my brother and I didn't want to go. And I love them as much, but I was like, I couldn't ask him to come because I barely, I knew that it it wouldn't be and it was going to be a bit of a, and then I got mad at him because I hadn't asked him to come and he wasn't coming. (laughs) And then finally I just said, I I need I I kind of would like you to come and he was like I totally come why I just yeah and I said he said why didn't you want to ask me and I said well I didn't want to be a burden and he laughed in my face <laughs> and he said here's a game uh, every time you think you're being a burden on me hand me a dollar and every time I think I'm being a burden on you I'll hand you that dollar right back and I promise you we will never need another dollar for forty years. We will just hand that dollar back and forth. He said, that's what marriage is. It's, just a, it's sharing the burden, right? I mean, it's neat. I mean, the dude is... So he's cheap. Super cheap. I might have missed the point of that. I might have missed the point. <laughs> yes, I'm wearing the same dress that I married in. <laughs> I haven't had a new handbag in months. Um... He sounds like a really, really beautiful guy. He's a good. He's a he's a good guy. He's, he's a sane keeper. and and uh, and I, you know, and people are like, because I never had any relationships. Uh, I had a boyfriend in high in in college for a year and a half, and for a year I tried to get rid of him, and uh, and I I've always thought that I was super mean to him, and I was just talking to him because I still know him, and he said, you know, I never felt that you were that mean to me, and I said. That's a sign of your horrible upbringing. <laughs> you know, I noticed. Go ahead. Because he was like, you're right, because I never expected anyone to be nice to me, and I wasn't particularly nice to him. And, I, and I've always felt bad about it, but we, you know, we've made resolution with it. And then for years, I just, I didn't date. I just, I just had crushes on male comics that were super funny, thinking, oh, maybe if I stand really close to him. They'll, uh, the genius will get on me, or what? But uh, I mean, it's completely insane. And luckily, none of those men liked me back. And uh, and so, but I would do the road, and I would do the road with you know guy comics who were also who were single or 
cheating and they would get laid and I'd be like, oh, is that what we do? We get laid. And so I'd get laid every time I wanted to take my life into my own hands. And uh, what, What's your line about it? It's difficult to... to... Oh, it's uh, hard to have an orgasm when you're poised for flight. <laughs> And, uh, so fantastic! <laughs> it's so fantastic. First time I heard you do that joke, I was like, "She, she I just, yeah, it's just, uh, it's true. You want you want to get laid? Who doesn't need a tune up? Everyone needs a tune up every now and then. But uh, you're just like, oh, I got to get super drunk and then take my life into my own hands and go into this room with a genuinely, usually perfectly nice man. I I was always very lucky uh, that I would pick uh, usually some perfectly nice. And every time uh, I'd uh, we'd get to the point where I didn't want to have sex, like. I remember one time the guy didn't have a condom, and I was like, "Nope, my people are fertile," and uh, and he was like, "Well, he took a not that he deserves a medal, you guys, but he took no for an answer," and uh, and then he but he said, "I'll go get condoms," and I was like, "Oh no, I'll be passed out by the time you get back." <laughs> Because I had, there was a certain level of drunk that I had yeah. to get. And I was like, there's a, you got a 35, 40 minute window here to fuck me. And then, I know it sounds really ladylike. Don't you all miss that you didn't know me when I drank a lot? And you've been sober for a while. You've been sober for how many years? 17. That's fantastic. This year, this month. If I stick it out. What, what has sobriety uh, given you? emotionally sanity it's mm. given me a lot of i mean the thing is is it's it's really taught me how to be a decent person because the thing is 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 because i used alcohol to to medicate right i mean i just i was like oh i want to check out i don't want to deal with because uh i remember when i first moved to los angeles i would get so drunk and i don't have great conversational skills anyway right so i would uh i would do a shot and a beer I would I would ask you about you if there would be a lull in the conversation I can't take silence I'm not good at it so uh I was I remember being at a party and I was talking to this woman and uh so it was some work party it was like a Hollywoody thing and I was like we had exhausted our conversation I said all right we're uh we're at that point where uh, you got to start talking more, or I can do material at you. <laughs> I'm not great, you guys. I'm not great. So what I've learned in sobriety is how to let there be some silence and work other people's bits into the conversation. <laughs> like, as, as, as information, you know, as sort of friendly, sort of... Oh yeah, that reminds me of a Tom Papa bit that I just told you earlier. Or have you guys heard Baron Vaughn's new joke about crickets? It's great. It's a really good bit. And I mean, like, it's sort of like other people talk about movies. They talk, you know, there's like water cooler conversation. Small talk. I'm not particularly good at small talk. So, but that is my small talk. Is me telling. Yeah. There's great comics out there, you guys. Uh, let me tell you about Lori Kilmartin. She's working it. Uh, anyway. Love Lori, great former guest. Yeah, yeah. all good. Yeah, there you go. Um, total. But, as my dad used to say, my brain just went to screensaver. <laughs> um, nice reference. The uh, what? What do you feel uh, you've gleaned from therapy? Oh, right. Because I did have I had intensive therapy. 
was before I stopped drinking. And uh, my therapist was like, do you drink? And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, a lot. And she was like, have you thought about stopping? And I was like, no. Why would I stop drinking? And she's like, well, you might be not dealing with your emotions by, by drinking. And I was like, no, I think if we can just fix my childhood, I'll be better. <laughs> and she was like, well, it's your hundred bucks. Let's do it. And, uh, and so she was great. She actually was an old hippie lady who used to do sex therapy naked in the 70s with people in the 70s in, the, in L.A. And uh, she said, in the 80s, I made everyone put their clothes on. Nobody needed to be nude. And I said, why was that? She said, I didn't look that great nude anymore. <laughs> I was like, well, that's knowing yourself. But what I, what I learned was literally, I mean, many of the greatest things I've ever learned is that you know, like, the, like, like a lot of people, you know, where you learn that your parents were once children, that they were poorly raised, that they had issues, that someone was mean to them, which is why they didn't know how to be a good parent, you know? And, and also is that everybody's doing the best they can, and sometimes it's incredibly bad that it, you're not good at this at all. And, and, and the other thing I learned is that I don't have to hang out with people that I don't like, you know, I don't have to deal. It's fine. It doesn't mean that we can't be polite, but if you aren't my friend and you're taking advantage of me or if you're blowing hot and cold and it's weird and I'm uncomfortable, I don't have to actually tolerate that. I hate confrontation, but Maria Bamford's like, you're so good at it. And, uh, <laughs> I'm like, I'm good at it because I can't stand the alternative, which is being sick to my stomach being around someone who's being mean. And I'm just like, I would rather, I would rather you be mean to my face than to sit there and have it be weird. I'm like, we're going to have this horrible conversation that neither of us want to have. And then at the end of it, Either you will leave and I won't ever have to see you again because you hate me, or we will go over a hump. We'll go over a hump mm -hmm. and we'll be friends or we'll be polite to each other and we'll know it. One of the weirdest things is that I, I never remember when people don't like me. So whenever I meet somebody who doesn't like me, I forget that. I'm like, oh, I remember you. And then I'm like, hey, how's it going? And they're like, Boo! And, <laughs> and I'm like, oh shit! You got to be mean to me again because you don't like me. But for some reason, I remember you. I can't imagine anybody not liking you. I know. I've hard never to seriously. I've never heard anybody say a bad word about you. You are so well liked in the comedy community. Well, that's very sweet. Yeah. It's uh, I'm not. I don't know. I don't. I mean, my. My self-esteem issues are more related to, I have a great, because I've done bad things, because I've been mean to people, and because, like I bought, oh, I went to Target, and I got a Star Wars The Force Awakens t-shirt, and I got it at the end of August, and they didn't charge me for it. Uh, so I went back the next day with my receipt, not wearing the shirt, and I just grabbed another one off the thing, and I was like, hey, you guys forgot to charge me for this, I owe you $12. And uh, and they were like, what? Uh, it's Target. Uh, run. 
And, uh, <laughs> but the manager was like, this is, uh, you know, when they always say that, that thing, oh, you're being so honest. And I'm like, well, I'm making up for horrible, horrible thieving moments in my past by being, uh, you know, sort of a, <laughs> just being a halfway decent human being now. And so they try to ring it up. And he's like, oh, my God, we weren't supposed to start selling this. This is a time sale. It's not supposed to go on sale until September 4th. And, uh, and I said, oh. And then we just kind of stare at each other for a second. And I go, so do I get a free shirt now? And, uh, and he goes, unless you come back on September 4th. And I was like, no, that seems like a good effort. <laughs> but, uh, but it's like, um, but I, I don't, I'm always, I'm always trying to make up for, for things that I did for probably 15 years, you know? And I'm 50. So for 35 years, whatever the math would be, uh, I have been a halfway decent human being, but I still have that guilt. I still have that inside that's telling me that I'm not a good person, I, that I'm not enough of a too. person, yeah. right? Yeah. And uh, everyone around me is like, no, you seem like a perfectly nice human being. I, you seem to be doing everything you can to be a decent person. And you're like, yes, yes, but constant vigilance, Mad-Eye Moody, right? you got to live Mad-Eye Moody, constant vigilance. What is that a reference to? Harry Potter. Oh, okay. Yes. Would you like to do some uh, some fears and loves? Oh, right, the list. Yeah. I thought we had covered them pretty much, don't you think? Or uh, well, if you get to uh, one on your on your list that you feel like we uh, we, we covered already, yeah, uh, let's we do can it. we can skip over that. I've written some of mine. You would think I would have run out. Uh, I'll I, tell you I, that. Oh, I did this one, which was um, that one of the things I never realized, which other people I think have always realized. Or, I don't know, uh, is how addictive being in a relationship is. How addictive physical love with a, with a partner is. Having my husband, I can see why you would be with someone who you don't necessarily love. And you'd stay, like, people go from relationship to relationship, even though it's just, yeah, that's all right. That'll, that guy will do, or that woman will do, or whatever. Because, because it's that, phys- that physical contact, and, the, and the, it, it's like a drug. Especially in the beginning, because the newness is so exciting. Right, that's, that, was cra- that, was cra- that was crazyville, man. And, uh, but the, the, like, I think, you know, like when you, you, sometimes you think about your partner dying, and so I, whenever Right I, as you I, orgasm, right? That's right. <laughs> I was like... My safe word is apricot. Me and Barry Manilow. <laughs> Both of our safe word is apricot. Um, I am so not a wild cat in the sack, you guys. Hardworking and earnest. Um, makes up for a lot. And uh, all right, give me a give me a give me a fear. Get you a fear. Um, yeah. So we were just talking about that. Uh, the, uh, Did I cut you off? Nope, okay. I don't think so. We talk about loves because I think we covered all my fears, don't you think? Okay. Being um, alone, being liked, being a good person, body image stuff, not yeah. wanting to care but not being able not to care because we live here. We're alive. We're walking around staring at each other going, hey, the person's really good looking. And uh, I'm going to read one fear that I have because uh, when I wrote it, I was like, oh, yeah, that th- this one is with me every single day. I'm afraid that I will look back on this period in my life and realize I blew it. I had such opportunity to secure my future, but I frittered it away with sleep and video games. Does that ring true for anybody? Or is that just me? Yeah. 
<laughs> I don't. Ha- I don't have that fear. Actually, I no. literally no. I feel like um, I genuinely am super <laughs> grateful. I work very hard to be grateful for stand-up comedy because I love stand-up comedy so much that every time I get to do it is a total fucking win. It's a win. It's if I'm in front of one guy named Joe, if I'm in front of uh, 7,000 people opening for Brian Regan, which was the biggest fucking thing in the world where you're like, oh, and there's a train going by. I don't care. Mm. And uh, so, I mean, you're just like, it doesn't matter. It's... it's um, because it's easy to get bitter in this. I've seen so much Very bitterness easy. in stand-up comedy where you're like, dude, I know you came up with Drew Carey and he became famous and you didn't, but you still make $45,000 a year doing stand-up comedy. That's a win. That's a win. You don't have to go and, you know, you, you're not living inside a filing cabinet, you weirdo. Uh, you win. <laughs> and th- that's a pet peeve where, I, where it's constant vigilance, trying not to be bitter about that. And... I'm constantly reminding myself that if I had to, I could get a day job. I could still do stand-up comedy, but I have all of my thumbs. I can answer phones. It's not, you know, comics who say, I could never do anything else for a living. You're like, that sounds like laziness. That doesn't sound... Get a fucking job. It's what, what are you, nuts? Anyway, so... Let's do, let's do some, uh, some loves. You got a love? Uh, yeah, I'll start off with one. I love being around my friend Pat Francis because... We both act like eight-year-olds, and it's so rare that I can laugh until my face or stomach hurts, and it's so nice to be around someone who is so completely in the moment. Yeah. If you've never listened to his podcast, it's called Rock Solid. Listen that to guy. it. That's great. He collects autographs. He, he has some great autograph stories, and he truly loves music. Like I know everybody, you know, quote-unquote, loves music, but it's, uh, it's cra- yeah, crazy. He is, he's amazing. Yeah. Um, give me a love uh, a love I would say give me the greatest love of all <laughs> roller skating backwards <laughs> no um, <laughs> the uh, <laughs> is that a roller rink reference uh, yes <laughs> couple skate do it anyway um, I would say uh, the greatest thing I love is well, that's a dream. That's not a love. Uh, I, Dreams I, are okay. I love... I, the thing is, when you were saying that, mm-hmm. I love and miss my friend Maria Bamford. Bamford, she's got work right now, and so she's working nonstop, like 10, 12 hours a day. And I hanging out with Maria Bamford and just talk about laughing and being in the moment and just riffing. We do joke machine, right? So she'll mm-hmm. tell me... Like the darkest, weirdest joke she's working on, like some, you know, rabbit hole of cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs uh, premise. And and then I'll tell her my whatever weirdo thing. I'm time travel. Let's do it. And uh, and sh- and we just it just there's different. It's so smart. It's like it reminds me of those conversations in college when you're sitting around and and uh, you know you could have used a traveler's check to buy a latte, uh. and uh, <laughs> it's 1984, you guys. Anyway, in my head, and um, but it's it's like it's one of those it's like a slice of life where you're like that is a friendship that you're just like it's like a little slice of heaven, you yeah. know? It's just 
being with someone who is your friend or someone like being with with Andy sometimes sitting in the backyard with Tiberius as our iguana mm-hmm. and he's just sort of wandering around and there's feral cats who come and stare at him and sometimes Tiberius will chase the cats and sometimes the cats will just come and sit like r- almost right next to Tiberius and it'll be like like one of those unlikely friends that you'll see we have a Facebook. calendar we have an unlikely friends <laughs> calendar with a black a, a shitty black cat and our three and a half foot long iguana because that's <laughs> tiberius is an iguana and uh so and you're just like what is happening and uh but it's just i mean but it just feels right it just feels right and you know and it's a lot and los angeles is so beautiful sometimes like the orange tree and the whole the whole nine yards mm. but here's my dream sailboat cation sails i want to learn how to sail you guys not wind sail. Too hard. Uh, boat. Boat. Little sunfish out on the ocean. Uh, or I want to uh, clearly uh, die <laughs> just like on a sailboat because I don't know how to sail. But I would take lessons. I would take lessons. Have you seen the documentary Deep Water? No. Oh, Wait. you have to watch it. It was about one of the world's first around-the-world sailing trips that set oh, okay. off from England in the 70s. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's a fantastic documentary. Deep, okay, because I was thinking of Open Water. Uh, a movie. Oh, the, the movie where the people get left behind? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no. <clears throat> I think this one is called Deep Water. I'm almost positive okay, that's what it's called. Okay, I, I because when that movie came out, I said, I would rather die by means of Open Water than watch the movie Open Water. <laughs> I can't possibly watch that movie. I'm going to do another love. Okay. Uh, I love the opening of the song Black Sabbath by the band Black Sabbath. <laughs> it's so unlike anything before it, so unapologetic in its darkness, and gave birth to a genre of music, heavy metal, that gave me a chance to express my teenage emotions through playing guitar. It gave me my first teenage sense of self. Okay. That's amazing. There's, there's not a lot of... The, the song My Life by Billy Joel... That's a great song. That's a great song. It's the first time I ever heard about stand-up comedy. Because it's uh, about the guy who comes to L.A. and does stand-up. Mm-hmm. And I remember I was, uh, I must have been 13, and I, that was the first album I ever bought because of that song. And, uh, and I didn't even know what stand-up comedy was. So it was weird. I knew who Zig Ziglar was. I knew how to sell the sizzle. Not the steak. But, uh, but what one of my loves is... Uh, Finding finding the thing in a in a family member to love. Oh, that's it's a one of my one. favorite things that I've been able to find. You know, like I've worked on because I have four brothers and a sister, and I have cousins that are out of their damn minds. And I, I mean, we all have family members that are just banana. They're just they're money in the banana stand, you guys. <laughs> And you just want to find the thing that makes it possible for you to see them twice a year. You know? I mean, I, d- I don't want to, whatever. One of, my, one of my family members is, the best thing I can say about him is how sincere he is. You know? He is genuinely, he believes he's right, and he has always been there for his family and he works very very hard to provide for them and that is something i can respect and i can love and yet i could still be irritated when he is the bossiest fucking magoo at me and 
and I don't have to listen to it. I mean, I don't have to. But, but what I can do is I could say, you know, you you are very sincere. You know, and he wants. It's it's hi Terry. You listening? Anyway, so <laughs> it's my brother Terry. He's an evangelist, and he is sometimes. But his his belief system is not for me. You know his his belief of what women should do in life isn't anything to do with what, how I live my life. Our sister is a lesbian. He does not approve of that. My sister has said out loud one of the funniest things I've ever heard. She was mad one time at one of our other brothers and our father, and she said, I know everybody wants me to be the sad spinster lesbian who takes care of their kids, but fuck off. <laughs> I am going to have a life of my own. And I was like... Please write a novel with that as the first sentence. Because she's, I mean, and it's, there's no, I mean, I, Terry, he just, he believes his, his Jesus is forgiving, but it's also super judgmental. And the Jesus that I, I, I am a Christian. I don't tell anyone because everyone who ever says I am a Christian, the next words out of their mouth is always something nightmarish. So I don't tell anyone I'm a Christian, but I b believe in Christ. I have a very, it's, and it's a very nice Christ. Everything I've ever read that he's ever said, he's always been very supportive. <laughs> he's like, no, no, go forth into the world and be nice to each other. Don't be a dick. Uh, it's always been a very uh, he's always he seems to be a very nice man i have no uh there's and and terry's jesus is always it's super bossy and super judgmental and you're just like man there's no way that jesus would have been mad that i was living with my husband before we got married yeah. there's no way he would have gave a shit he would have been like well whatever man and and then kept doodling in the sand because that's what he was like yeah my only fear of Jesus comes back is that he's going to have too many emoticons on the closing of his emails. Did you ever read a book by Stephen Mitchell called The Gospel According to Jesus? Mm -mm. Stephen Mitchell's an amazing scholar, but he did a translation of, uh, from a historical point of view, from the original Aramaic, of everything from the five Gospels, the, the, big, the big Gospels, you guys. Nothing that the Vatican won't show us. But uh, the, the five The free birds of the Gospels. The, right. <laughs> All the hits. Yeah. And... Uh, <laughs> and it's essentially he pulls out of the gospels all the things that that historically seem that Jesus might have actually said and it's short super short you guys it's about 14 pages and a lot of margin a lot of margin and uh the indentation but it's beautiful it's one of the most beautiful like just a hint of how to live your life in a decent way and not be it's just, I mean, there's Not just... Not be super judgmental and right, he's exclu just, exclude other people. Yeah, just just genuinely decent. Yeah. And that's, I mean, I re the greatest thing about the Armenian church when I was a kid was that it was in Armenian. Because I don't speak Armenian. So, literally, <laughs> I would go to church and the vague thing that I would get was, be like the nice man in the picture, oh, and go get your dad some coffee. That was... <laughs> Because I was a girl child, there was a lot of step and fetch it. <laughs> but I don't mind getting my dad coffee. I'll get anybody coffee. I'm a good yep. sport. Well, Jackie, thank you so much for, for coming me, and, uh, and sharing your life with us. And just being you and being so funny. And uh, I really appreciate it. Jackie Cation, everybody.
And thank you guys for coming out, and thank you uh, to those of you that live stream this. Many, many thanks to to Jackie and those of you that flew in from uh, out of town to attend the the festival. Uh, so flattering, uh, and it's nice to meet you guys in person. Give you give you a high five and a hug. I actually like to to do both of those at the same time, and that way the person gets a nice nose full of your your armpit. Um, you know what Jackie could have used back in her day when she was doing laps in the gym while trying to read a book at the same time? Uh, she could have used uh, Audible. If you guys have never downloaded an audio program from Audible, you do not know what you are missing. Um, if you go to audiblepodcast.com slash metal, you can get a free audio book in a 30-day trial today just by signing up. Uh, there's so many great titles. They have over 180,000 different audio programs. And uh, I've done it. I uh, I've subscribed. And there, there are some great ones out there. Um, there's a Martin Short's uh, autobiography I, I downloaded. Of course, I shouldn't use as an example because right now I'm blanking on the name of the of the title. Um, a New Earth by Eckhart Tolle. Download that. It is the most profound book I've uh, probably ever read. Changed my life. And the nice thing about a, a book like that is you can just listen to two minutes of it in the car, especially when traffic is bad, and it will chill you out. It will change your day. Just two minutes of that book. Uh, in the morning will reset your compass. A book that really, really helped me too is Silently Seduced by Kenneth Adams. That book, um, if you were raised by a parent who treated like you were their partner, you have to download and listen to Silently Seduced. It will help you. You will say, oh my God, that is my story. So go to audiblepodcast.com slash metal for a free audio book and a 30-day uh, trial. That's A-U-D-I-B-L-E-P-O-D-C-A-S-T dot com slash mental. Um, yeah, check it out. Uh, and, and, and I also just want to give some love to Audible for being uh, such great supporters of the podcasting community. All right, let's get to some surveys. Uh, actually, this is an email that I got from a uh, woman who wants to re be referred to as Quantum Meruit, M-E-R-U-I-T, which roughly translates to you get what you pay for. Um, she writes, just dropping in to say I was almost offended during the survey part of the Kate Spencer episode when you suggested to that woman who was having sexual conversations and sexting with an old crush because her boyfriend couldn't get it up after a few beers that she might have a sex addiction. Having threesomes and then looking for fulfillment outside of a current, quote, primary relationship does not mean there's a sex addiction. She obviously has a few things going on, but as someone who is in a polyamorous relationship and knows many others who f find success in them, I don't believe one equals the other. I have a few relationships with men that fulfill, fulfill certain emotional and physical needs that just don't get met when I have to rely on just one person. Those needs have varied as my primary relationships and life stage have varied. However, one of my longest, uh, one of my longest running relationships is with a secondary partner. Three years. It hasn't always been easy to follow some of the more stringent or tough best practices for the poly lifestyle but it's been worth it in the long worth it in the end i've been honest with men i've dated and let them decide if they want to continue to see me some have some haven't sometimes i go months without sex but derive important life-sustaining things from my relationships nonetheless i think it would also be great to maybe consider adding this distinction to a future guest therapist podcast 
Also, continuing to hear people feel ashamed of being turned on by BDSM is awful and depressing. If I don't get a solid flogging and shibari session at least once a year, I start going through withdrawal. And if you can't do at least one of the following, pulling my hair, holding me down, or breath play, I'm not going to orgasm for you. It's a fact that I'm not embarrassed about, and I wish others could find the safe space to feel this liberation too. And uh, and she also writes, BTW, shibari is Japanese rope tying used for tying people up decoratively or functionally, uh, i.e. suspension, puzzle knots. Uh, think of it as rope origami. Thank you for Thank you for sharing that. This is from the Shame and Secret Survey. This is filled out by a woman who calls herself Struggling Parent. She is in her 40s, straight, raised in a totally chaotic environment, uh, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Um, uh, she was an adult when it, uh, when it happened. Um, she's been emotionally abused. She writes, I'm pretty sure that my mom has an undiagnosed mental illness. My father was in the Air Force Reserves when I was a kid. One weekend a month, two weeks a year. Sometimes my mom would get angry with me or dad and I wouldn't know why. The worst part was that she would stop speaking to me or my dad for days, sometimes weeks at a time. It was not too bad if my dad was home, but when he was in the reserves, it was horrible. One of my earliest memories uh, was of my dad being gone for the weekend and my mom was mad, probably depressed. She locked herself in her room and wouldn't come out all weekend. She didn't cook for me or help me with my bath or comb my hair. I was four years old. Oh, that is heartbreaking. Um, any positive experiences with your abusers? My mother was wonderful to be around when she wasn't having one of her, quote, episodes. We used to take these amazing vacations to the beach and walk along picking up shells. We have a decent relationship now. I confronted her about a year ago about how she treated me, but these memories still cloud my thinking and cause me to overthink my own parenting. Darkest thoughts. I love her, but I wish she would just die. I'd sell her house, get rid of everything in it, and put the money... Uh, from the sale in a college fund for my kid. Darkest Secrets. I also had a complicated relationship with my dad. He died about 20 years ago. He used to fall asleep in his recliner and his penis would always be erect sticking out of his pants, sometimes with his hand wrapped around it. I found his collection of porn mags in his car when I was four. I caught him watching porn when I was a teenager. I told my mom this for the first time a few months ago and her response was, he cheated on me. She didn't ask me how I was feeling about it or how it affected me. She just couldn't get over the fact that, quote, he cheated, which I think is so fucking stupid because I don't think viewing porn constitutes cheating, but it messed my head up pretty bad. Uh, you know, and my, my take on your your dad was uh, that, that those were not accidents that, uh, you know, I think your dad was trying to make it look like it was accidental. I think your dad was... Uh, doing that stuff on purpose um it's could be wrong but that's just uh what my what my gut tells me what if anything would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to i'd like to ask my dad why he let my mom continue to parent me even though he knew she was insane what if anything do you wish for peace and for both my mother and ex-mother-in-law uh to just die already have you shared these things with others yeah my hubby he's so sweet and supportive how do you feel after writing these things down? Actually, pretty good. 
Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? If you're struggling, please find a therapist that you feel comfortable with. Don't stop until you find the right match. That person can often make a huge difference in your recovery. Amen. Amen. This is an awfulsome moment, and this was filled out by a guy who calls himself Wolf Tamer. He uh, writes, I grew up in England, and my wife grew up in the U.S. We met online, and things got serious very quickly. We emailed back and forth uh, for four months before I decided to fly out and meet her in person. The moment I saw her, I knew she was the one. I know it sounds cheesy, but seeing her was like coming home. She dropped me off at my hotel room. We chatted for a while, and then she went home so I could sleep off my jet lag. The next day, we went out for Chinese food. Then she and I went back to my hotel where she stayed the night. We talked for hours, and I felt such a connection to her that I opened up to her about my childhood abuse, which I'd never told anyone before. I felt very vulnerable, but she seemed wonderful and accepting. We went to sleep, but I was awoken in the middle of the night with pain in my stomach. I ran to the bathroom, only just getting there in time, where, what I can only guess was bad food, exploded out of me. Unfortunately, the fan in the bathroom didn't work, so I couldn't drown out the sound. It was incredibly loud and echoed. I knew that, unless she was fast asleep, there was no way she didn't hear me. That was when the anxiety started. Great, I told myself. Just when I find someone I think I can be close to, I go and humiliate myself in front of her. She's probably never going to be able to forget this. I will always be that guy. I slunk out of the bathroom ready for my humiliation, but she was asleep. I got back in bed, and a little while later, she sneaked out of bed and into the bathroom. I could hear her clearly. She had the same issue as I just had. When she came out of the bathroom, we caught each other's gaze, realized each other's embarrassment, and simply smiled. That was 15 years ago, and we're still together. We now simply refer to that night as the Szechuan incident. Oh, thank you for that. This is, um, that's like a watershed moment in a, <laughs> in a relationship when, when just all the last little bit of dignity <laughs> is, is gone. Just those moments where there you are just two raw human beings in front of each other, warts and all. This is from a struggle in a sentence filled out by Andrea and about her depression. She writes, I sit, I stare, I feel nothing. I want to move, but can't force myself up. Oh my God, do I relate to that? About uh, her alcoholism, she writes, is it wrong to drink vodka coolers out of diet cans at 8 a.m.? Not if it's a diet can. Uh, snapshot from her life. I cry because of the season. I, oh, she also has PTSD, um, which she calls, uh, calls a mind fuck that consistently pushes away everyone I love. Snapshot from her life. I cry because of the season. I feel nausea because of what happened. I feel terror even though I know I am safe. Subtle smells trigger it. Certain words take me there. People I love I had to leave behind because they knew me then and that alone fucks me up. Wow. Sending you some love. That sounds that sounds like just a minefield every day. And if I could give you any advice, not that you're asking for it, but start with dealing with it with the alcoholism, because I think it's 
it's almost impossible to heal while still feeding an addiction. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself functional boozer. Speaking of booze, he's uh, straight in his 30s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Um, he's never been sexually abused, uh, never been physically abused, but he has been emotionally abused. He doesn't uh, specify. Darkest thoughts. I sometimes fantasize about being a full-time drunk living in Bombay Beach near the Salton Sea. It makes me depressed thinking about it, but at the same time, it is intriguing. I, I, when I first read this, I was like, who the fuck fantasizes about the Salton Sea? For those of you that don't know what the Salton Sea is, it was this man-made um, uh, lake inland from Los Angeles in the desert that backfired and it turned really salty and and then just uh, is in the process of uh, of dying. And when they first made it, it was, you know, it was filled, stocked with fish and they built all these beautiful homes around it and it was going to be, it was going to be this little nirvana. Um, and it has now just become a kind of a place where uh, people that, uh, how do I, how do I put this tactfully? People who want to live off the grid and have nothing to do with society, um, go to live lots of guns uh lots of uh i'm sure i'm not gonna i'm not gonna in a nutshell one of the most depressing places i think you could ever ever live um my, my point being is i understand that i understand wanting to go towards the stinky and by stinky i don't mean literally stinky even though I'm sure the Salton Sea probably doesn't smell too good, but wanting to to embrace. Like, when I sometimes feel really cornered in my life, I think about draining my bank account and buying, mind you, I've never done heroin, buying as much heroin as I can and going to a shitty hotel in Seattle and just doing heroin until I die. And I never picture it as a good hotel. I picture it as a depressing hotel. And there's something comforting about that. What is that? Why is it that we want our outsides to match our insides? And that's why we fantasize about that? I don't know. Darkest Secrets. Dr driven drunk many times with my two and five-year-old in the car. Oh, man, please get help. Please get help. Um... Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I fantasize uh, fucking two women while being filmed by a camera crew in a room full of people. Um, I've been hiding my drinking to everyone I know, uh, much like I did before I got sober the first time. Now I'm back where I started after being in the program for two years. I'm ashamed about going back out, but at times I'm enjoying it, so maybe I'm not done. Uh, what, if anything, do you wish for that I don't have to crave getting fucked up anymore? Have you shared these things with others? When I was regularly attending a support group, I did, but I haven't been back in a year. Well, maybe it's time to go back. How do you feel after writing these things down? Uh, a little hopeful that I'll grow some balls and get my uh, ass back to the rooms. At the same time, I'm fearful that I'll get stuck and not make it back. 
and he would like more shows with addicts and or recovering uh, addicts. I worry sometimes that I have too many addicts on the show, so that's good to hear that there's somebody that wants more. Sending you some love, buddy. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a woman who calls herself woman in a potato's body. I'm a fan. Right out of the gate, I am a fan. About her depression, the sheets on my bed are on upside down. The pillowcase fell behind the bed. The dog is too short to climb up and comfort me. I better lay here forever and hope a comet comes by and kills me. I think I should be the title of a book. Might be a little long. Uh, and about her low self-esteem, she writes, uh, Thanks to my low self-esteem, working in a call answering center and talking to belligerent people whose cable is out is just great. Every time I get off a call, I shout, I do good work to the empty workroom. Surely it will work eventually. <laughs> it's such a visual. That's like from a movie. Just somebody getting yelled at, hanging up the phone, <laughs> saying, I do good work to an empty room. Oh, my God. Thank you for that. I love when you guys make me laugh. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by Annie. Uh, she's a teenager, and she writes about her depression. Nothing good that could ever happen is worth another day of being alive. Uh, about uh, being African and uh, experiencing uh, racial bias, she writes, All my life I've been told that the top of my head to the soles of my feet are ugly, and all my life I have repeated this to myself. Oh. Snapshot from her life, lying in bed, planning a retirement trip with a friend over Skype as we do our homework and having to put the finger over the webcam every so often to hide my tears because I know I won't make it that far. Ah, oh, that just... I hope you open up to somebody, Annie. I hope you open up to somebody. And you can make it. You can make it. Things can get better. You know, I, I bet if you didn't put your finger over the webcam and you let your friends see you cry, it might help. It might help. I mean, I don't know your relationship with your friend, but um, we, all, we all need uh, somebody to, to lean on and... Um, yeah. Anyway, thank you for sharing that. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Mother of Parakeets. And she writes, On Christmas Day a few years ago, we were opening presents when my father realizes that I had gotten my mother a more expensive gift. Didn't matter to him that I'd put more thought into his gift than hers. Uh, that doesn't make sense. Then I put more thought into his gift than hers just that it was more expensive. It didn't matter to him that I put more thought. I think he, she meant to say, I put more thought into her gift than his, uh, just that it was more expensive. Anyway, that's not the important part, but thank you for bogging the show down, Paul. He flew into a rage and screamed that I loved her more. He said I didn't like him <laughs> because of his kinky hair. And then I ruined Christmas. He then stormed off upstairs 
to his room and slam the door. At the time, I cry, but now I just laugh at my 60-year-old father's childish behavior. <laughs> that is, in the, in the four years, four and a half years of doing this show, that might be the most childish parental outburst I've ever heard. And I think the, the kinky hair is the is the thing that just pushes it over the top. Oh my god. I know I shouldn't laugh at his pain and his his stunted emotional growth, but he also shouldn't be so funny. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by Emily S. And she is straight in her 20s, raised in a stable and safe environment, although she qualifies. Although my mom was extremely protective of me and didn't help with my esteem issues. That is always such a tough one, the overly protective parent, because on the surface, it seems like it's just from a pure place of love. But really, there's like an element of control and um, condescension to it that is... I think really uh, corrosive. Have you ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. One time when I was in third grade, my cousin, who was older than I am, came over and he helped me with a drawing. When he was about to leave, he asked for a kiss, and I didn't want to, but he pulled me and kissed me on the lips. Uh, have you ever been physically or emotionally abused? Um, not sure. I'm not sure if this counts. <laughs> this kills me. I'm not sure if this counts, but people keep telling me that I'm stupid. Yeah, I think that that might be that might be uh, emotional abuse. And by the way, I like how I inform her of that in a way that is insulting. Nicely done, Paul. Um, my sister, uh, when I decided to take uh, nursing in college, told me that my brains cannot handle it. But I was able to pass the entrance exam and survived a year of nursing school before switching to another program. I still think about her comment a lot and other comments similar to it. Any positive experiences with your abusers? My cousin never did anything like that again. I don't know if it was just an innocent kiss or if it was sexual abuse. He's a good guy in general. It sounds pretty innocent to me, but you know, ultimately, it's it's how we feel about it. Uh, it is much more important than how it's classified. And if it didn't bother you, um, then you know, everything's cool. Darkest thoughts. When I'm really mad, I sometimes imagine myself going insane and pushing people I know in front of trains and living a peaceful life after it because then there would be no one to comment on everything I do and I would stop overthinking things. You would have to push a lot of people in front of a lot of trains. And eventually word is going to get around that uh, the train pusher is down in the station and people are going to stop taking the train. So your, your plan no matter how successful you get it going, is going to get diminishing returns. So what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to start bringing in buses and then airplanes and then eventually rickshaws. Darkest secrets. Puberty was not kind to me. <laughs> I have a feeling you're not alone in that one. 
Uh, I didn't start wearing deodorant until after sixth grade. I smelled and some popular people noticed and told everyone about it. I went to the same school for five more years after that and it was a nightmare. I was already a quiet kid and that shit did not help. My self-esteem plummeted. I stopped trying to join activities and I harbored deep resentment for people I went to school with. During the last day of class, they were giving away certificates and mine read, Most Keen and some jock commented that they gave it to me because they couldn't think of anything else to give me. I'm also going to guess that that jock didn't know what keen meant. Uh, I thought about those events in college, too. Every time I fucked up, I would get flashbacks of those events. I cannot, I cannot even tell my counselor about this out of shame. You know, I think that that would be a great exercise for you to work on your shame, to tell your counselor that, because um, it's so not something to be ashamed about but you know as as the master of uh shame i also know that shame doesn't make sense so that might be a good uh a good kind of little thing to try to push through sexual fantasy is most powerful to you i don't have much i just want to have sex with a stranger without the fear of my body being judged what if anything would you like to say to someone i'd uh, tell my mom to stop controlling my life all the time and stop getting involved in my siblings' lives so much. I wasn't able to experience a lot of things because of her. I'd tell the popular kids at my high school how much they hurt me, but I doubt they'd listen because it seems that they haven't changed much over the years. No, they're probably they're probably busy pumping out insensitive children. What, if anything, do you wish for? They're probably busy pumping out insensitive children and making sure that the only thing they do in life is vote. <laughs> what, if anything, do you wish for? I really wish my anxiety would disappear so I'd sweat slash stink less and to have an even-colored skin so I'd stop getting shit for it and won't be ashamed to wear sleeveless shirts and swimsuits. Have you shared these things with others? No, at least not in detail. I can't even tell my counselor about it because I'm too ashamed to. I wouldn't know how to tell her without feeling so shitty after. Even writing to you about it anonymously is embarrassing. You so have nothing to be embarrassed about. When I was 15, 16 years old, I sweated so much underneath my arms. I'm not kidding you. It was, there were sweat circles the size of beach balls, almost all the way down to my waist. No amount of, I, I must have tried every deodorant under the sun and and nothing worked. Nothing worked. And uh, yeah, so you're, you're not alone. You're not alone in that. How do you feel after writing these things down? Uh, a little relieved. You're the first person I've told about these events. Oh, that's sweet. That is one of the nicest things about doing this podcast is getting to read you guys opening up about something for the first time. It is such a privilege. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by Joe Average. Um, and he puts in parentheses, but a fatter version. About his depression. Another day of checking my unimpressive bank balance, pretending I don't mind another mom visit, and hoping to run into that girl at the gym that I don't stand a chance with. And then the snapshot from his life, I know more about the guy that delivers my pizzas than I do about my dad. I highly recommend that you, um, I don't know much more about your mom other than that, but I'm guessing there's a huge imbalance between your mom and dad and how much, how much attention and interest they take in your life and that she's probably a little 
covertly incestuous with you, highly recommend you check out that book, uh, Silently Seduced. Could be wrong, but uh, that's what my big fat gut tells me. Same survey, filled out by a guy who calls himself the Owl's Tanager. Don't know what that means. I love how smart you guys are. That is one of uh, the more flattering things when I get an email from you guys or you fill out a survey and uh, it's obvious you're smarty pants. I'm like, wow. And they listen to this podcast. Uh, this is a snapshot from his life. He writes, uh, he, he lives with Crohn's disease. And um, actually, uh, let me read this one first about his. Uh, I need to make calls to arrange my treatments for Crohn's, but that would require talking to someone on the phone. So maybe I'll just stick with the diarrhea and cramping. Maybe I'll even lose weight to not be a disgusting fatty. Snapshot from his life. Today I'm going to do laundry, but then I think about all the people at the laundromat bringing enough coins to run the machines. Staying home and re-wearing underwear would be so much easier. Thank you for that. This is an awful moment filled out by Hannah, and uh, she's 16. She writes, I spent uh, a school night freshman year driving to the rescue of a suicidal friend. I didn't leave her side holding her as she shook, sobbed, and twitched from the PTSD attacks of her abusive father. I remember the exact way we were laying on her bed, curled around each other, me on the outside. I held her elbows, tenderly keeping my hands away from the shallow red cuts on her arm. I was terrified in a different way than any panic attack I had ever felt. But as we finally drifted off to sleep, still wrapped in each other's arms, I realized that this is the purest form of love and care I have ever felt for another human being. And knowing her for a month, I had received more love and acceptance than I had from my own mother. That is what friendship is all about. That's what human contact is about. That's what life is about. It made us, it made us both want to live. Wow. That is, uh, that is so beautiful. That is so beautiful. I think that could have been a happy moment. Herbert, can you hear Herbert? He is just, he is becoming such a treat whore. It's, you can't go two hours without him making this, this entitled. They are, Ivy and Herbert are not aging gracefully. And Herbert today, he's in the backyard. And I see him, like, trying to move. It looks like he's moving dirt with his nose. And so I go to see what it is. Dead squirrel. He's moving a dead squirrel around in the dirt. And somehow, I don't know if the squirrel dug its way halfway into the dirt to die, but, like, the the top half of its body was under the dirt. So I don't know if Herbert dug a hole and moved it. And But there are moments when, when I look at... My dog's doing something disgusting, and I'm like, and I kiss that dog. I don't even want to know what's floating around in my bloodstream. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Link. Hold on one second. I always forget to mute the music, and then it comes in too early. She is um, gay. She's in her 20s. Uh, she was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. She was the victim of sexual abuse and uh, reported it. 
She writes, when I was eight, my mother met a man. When she left me alone with him and he would rub me down with lotion and quickly pull my pants down, look at my private parts, and then pull my pants back up. Uh, when I got older, uh, 13, he would rub me down but start touching my ass. He would wake me up every morning by sneaking into my room and rubbing my ass. Uh, I reported it but was forced by the school therapist, someone I trusted, not to say anything. I was so ashamed and horrified that the cops didn't believe me and we never spoke about it again. In the family, never spoke about it again in the family because they took me to another therapist and he forced me to say in front of the man who did this to look him in the eye and say I made it all up. And it didn't happen. This has haunted me all my life and was the hardest day of my life. I can't imagine how fucking awful all of that was. Oh my God. Uh, she's been physically and emotionally abused. Uh, no positive experiences with abusers. Darkest thoughts. Killing people at my work and having the death be more or less severe depending on how much uh, they annoy me. That's That sounds like a meritocracy to me. Uh, I am going to go ahead and sign off on that. Give it my rubber stamp. Darkest secrets. When I was four, I was forced by an older cousin to give a blowjob to her brother. He was three. Um, sexual fantasies most powerful to you. Fantasies of raping a girl while I wear a large strap on. Uh, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would tell my father he's the worst man on earth for not helping me and letting my stepfather do those things to me. What, if anything, do you wish for? I just wish to be okay for once in my life. Uh, have you shared these things with others? No, I do not trust someone enough to tell them. I do not have friends and can't stand the people I work with. How do you feel after writing these things down? Like a weight has lifted and it will be a little easier to get up in the morning. Well, I'm glad that you are, are feeling a little lighter. And I would just say you can get more of that feeling of weight being lifted if you can just take that plunge and try to open up to some people, maybe in a support group, you know, maybe a support group for people who were sexually abused. Um, because going through life not trusting anybody is no way to live. It's no way to live. I did it for years and it is miserable. This is from the Being Hospitalized survey and... Um, she calls herself LVS Hugs. Uh, I guess that means loves hugs. And um, she writes, I was told I was uh, not stable to be by myself. Um, what was your experience like? At moments, it was cliche, signing and coloring. I kept waiting for us to break out a bonfire and sing around it holding hands. But there were a few moments that were helpful. Going to groups showed me I wasn't the only nut in the house. We were a can of planters. And let's face it, there's always someone who has a life way more fucked up compared to yours. It was humbling, to be honest. Um, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. This is from the uh, first day in therapy uh, survey, and this is filled up by a woman who's uh, between 36 and 50. And what brought you to therapy? My husband made an appointment for us. We were married uh, 21 years, and my anger was increasingly out of control. Any fears associated with starting therapy? I was convinced he made the appointment so he could ask me for a divorce. Did any of the fears you described come true? No. 
what works best for you in therapy. When the therapist would catch seconds or moments and ask what we were holding back, force us in a way to say what we really wanted to say. That is, that is a good therapist if they can, because those are the man. Those are the moments that are just like so pivotal in the growth of of not only our relationship with ourselves, but our relationship with the you know somebody if we're if we're doing counseling with them, you know, a partner. Initial impressions of your therapist. She was fair. She referred us to a book and exercises to begin with. Um, do you feel you can be completely honest with your therapist? I think I can. I'm not, and that there are things I leave out. That is probably why I'm in therapy. Agreed. Um, anything you'd like to share with a group of new therapists? Uh, I wanted to know from day one how long this would take. What was the process? When am I cured? I know a little better now why that's not addressed, but I wanted to know when I would be done. And then we, we're... we're uh, We've got an awfulsome moment and then a happy moment uh, left, and this is the uh, this is the awfulsome moment, filled out by a woman who calls herself "No Coward Soul Is Mine," and she writes, "My only goal in life, my only true dream, is to not be like my mother. She's more than the ju- uh, she's more than just the worst person I know. She's in my nightmares." She's the reason I sleep less than two hours a night with both a knife and a taser under my pillow. She's the reason I've almost died more times than I can remember. The reason I spent my childhood waking up at 3 a.m. every morning so I could hide even though she usually found me. At 5'5 and less than 100 pounds, she's still my big scary monster. I've spent the last eight years doing everything I can to get away from her and I'm about 99% successful. Even some of the nightmares have lightened up in the last few years. People are lying when they tell you that time and distance can heal anything. It never heals, but does give you a break every now and then, which is why it was weird the other morning when I woke up at 3 a.m. in a panic. Severe panic. I tend to be all PTSD and hypervigilant on good days. My therapist jokes that... I think I'm in a Jason Bourne movie, but this this is the kind I usually only feel when severe triggers are trying to crash my world because it's actually happening. But this time, there was no reason for it. I checked out every window of my house, checked every lock, spent the next three hours watching through the keyhole of my front door to make sure no one was following me, no one was waiting outside my house. There was nothing, but I couldn't shake the panic. I tried taking a long shower. The steam can sometimes calm me but it didn't work. So I spent time making myself breakfast, smoking weed, then doing chores. By the way, not sure I'm gonna, I'm, I'm a big believer in uh, smoking weed to ease the paranoia. But uh, anyway, smoking weed, then doing chores and reorganizing the house, meditating. I tried every trick, but the panic was still there and only getting worse. But there was nothing. There was no threat, and I couldn't figure out why I was in such a severe panic. I had plans later that day to go to an Oktoberfest festival with some buddies, and I thought maybe I was just having social anxiety, even though I look forward to Oktoberfest every year. Uh, It's one of the few social events I I can stomach through. But the panic. I just felt someone was watching me, someone after me, but it made no sense, so I did my best to ignore it. I smoked more weed, called a cab, and went to Oktoberfest and met up with my friends anyway. The panic was still growing, but after a couple of beers, I was dedicated to staying, keeping myself 
kept telling myself the German beers once a year were worth it. So there I was, doing my best to enjoy my beers, surrounded by a table of decent friends and good food, and just like that, my stomach dropped. Just like in every bad movie during every crucial moment, everything fell away, everything went silent, and my radar aims to a certain spot in the crowd, and I don't even know what I'm looking at, what I'm looking for until I see it, until I see her. She hasn't seen or spoken to me in nearly eight years, and there she is, my mother, standing in the crowd at one of the maybe three social events I go to a year. It's a true testament to how much I love German beers and how strongly I didn't want my table of friends to see my true self. It was my need to not let anyone see me panic that was stronger than my need to run away from my mother, and somehow I held it together and didn't make hiding my face too obvious while my mother walked through the crowd for the next hour. I don't know if she was there looking for me. I don't know if it was a coincidence. And I don't want to know. I've worked too hard to get away from her to backtrack now. It was awful, feeling my entire 28 years of trauma attacking every single one of my nerves. It was awful, forcing myself to sit there and laugh at meaningless jokes with friends while simultaneously keeping an eye on where my mother was and hiding my face when she came too close. It was awful to realize that since 3 a.m., my body somehow knew she was going to be there, even even though we don't even live in the same state. It was awful, but I didn't scream. I didn't run. She didn't find me. If she was there for me, if she was there because she was after me, then she didn't get what she wanted. She didn't even see me. And I got to enjoy my beers, all the while knowing that I could rub it in my therapist's face later. That I am awfulsome, just like Jason fucking Bourne. <laughs> Thank you for that. And then finally, this is, I, I never, I, that is one of my regrets, uh, being a sober person now, is that I never got to go to Oktoberfest. I'm sure it would probably have never been as, uh, you know, as good as I make it up in my in my fantasy. But uh, I kind of wish I would have gone. This is a happy moment, and this is filled out by uh, a woman who calls herself Imone, and uh, we've read stuff from her before. And this is such a beautiful moment. Um, She writes, when I reflect on my childhood, it is generally dismal. However, there is a moment that I will hold in my heart forever. My mother and I went swimming at an outdoor pool one day in the summer when I was about nine years old. She taught me tea party where you go under the water and pretend to have a tea party, pouring tea into a cup and stirring the tea and drinking it. We were doing this over and over. Eventually, we would just go underwater and we would look at each other, drifting closer and closer. I never knew my mom had freckles because she always wore a lot of makeup, but I could see them very clearly under the water. It was shocking because I lived with her and you would think I would have noticed them, but I think the lack of makeup, the sun exposure, and the magnification of the water made them pop. She never looked more beautiful to me. Her vulnerability, willingness to be present just for me, and the fact that she was very young then, 26, and wasn't wrecked by drinking yet, has made this memory a warm and happy one. A little bittersweet there at the end, but God, that is, uh, I just, I, I, when you guys paint these pictures, um, 
it just um I don't have words for it. I don't have words for it. It it um it's like it um it reminds me what's good about being alive. You know, not that I'm sitting here every day, <laughs> you know, going, well on this hand, you know, on that hand, but It was such a beautiful moment. And I think I, you know what I think strikes me about that too? Is that such a doable thing for a parent to do with a kid? Yet, when we're stuck in our own fucked upness, it's so hard for a parent to do that when their demons are going unchecked and they're not getting help. And that's like climbing Mount Everest for for a parent to do that. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope you loved the uh, the interview with Jackie as much as I did. Um, so funny, so funny. And I hope if you, uh, I hope if you're struggling, you heard something tonight that uh, maybe gave you a little hope, brought you a little bit of comfort. Uh, and if you didn't like tonight's episode, I, I hope right now you're you're fucking yourself. I hope you're just uh, pulled out something that operates on batteries, and uh, there's a little sand on it, and you are just going to town on yourself, and it hurts. I don't like the way this episode is ending. I might have to go back and edit that out. Nah, fuck you. I'm leaving it in. How's that? How's that for a send-off? <laughs> you know what's going to happen? I'm going to apply for nonprofit status, and the people that approve it, this will be the one section that they listen to. <laughs> oh. If you're out there and you're struggling, you are not alone. By any means, you are not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.